0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Continuing on our series Genesis, uh, God and Man, we're in Genesis chapter 19. And I uh, uh, I want to tell you about a curtain that I have in my house. I have a, a curtain uh, that's held into my wall by a molly. Uh, but if you ask my kids, they think that it's just a fixture in the house. They think that you could just swing on it like a pirate rope. It's the most attractive thing to them in the house. I give them a Game Boy, like, we'll give them whatever. I'm a sucker, like, I'll give you whatever you want. But they don't want toys, they want my house. They, they don't want to play with toys. They want to play with my car, and they want to play with the curtain. And I could put a SpongeBob toy in front of them, it doesn't matter. They want to play with that curtain, they want to swing on it. Like it's a, It doesn't matter how many t- times I tell them. I want to show you a picture of uh, Ollie, my youngest son's, uh, Oliver, his artwork recently. Um, I actually just painted around it uh, because I want to frame it, but... Um, I I call this little character Poop Man. It reminds people that if you're next to the toilet paper, hey, you might as well take advantage of that, I guess. Uh, Ollie drew that, his little stick figure, and we just made it a fixture of our house. Um, If you have kids, they don't want to play with their toys. They want to play with your stuff because they know that the toys are just a decoy for what's really great. They want your screen. They want your iPad. They want your iPhone. They don't want to play with Play-Doh. I mean, that's not expensive. They want to play with your stuff. They want to drive your car, you know. So tell my kids, you know, you don't pull. You don't pull on the curtain. You pull on the curtain enough, it'll fall down on you. You know, So, um, Psalm 89 is an important uh, verse that helps us navigate the scripture this morning. Psalm 89 says that the foundations of the world that we live in, the structure of what we live in, uh, is not made of mollies. It's made of righteousness and justice. And, and what that says is, you know, it says in Psalm 89, verse 14 on the screen, His loving kindness goes before Him, and His righteousness and justice make up the foundations of the earth. And what it's saying is that if if you or me were to tug on the curtains of righteousness and justice, if we were to tug on it long enough as though they were ours to keep, like if we were to pull on righteousness and redefine it in such a way that we were just going to like create a new version of righteousness that doesn't align with that righteousness, if we like pulled on that curtain enough, it will fall on us. Like that's what it's saying. Righteousness and justice are the pillars of this, of this household, this cathedral of the world, in and outside the church. And if you abuse and neglect and redefine and trespass against righteousness and justice for long enough, it'll fall on you. And so, the Bible, um, we don't know when the world's going to end. If you know somebody that thinks they know when the world's going to end, they must be smarter than Jesus, because Jesus didn't know when the world's going to end. And... When Jesus comes into situations like this, if you think this is a moment of judgment, he'll just say, welcome to the world. Like, this is how the world works. Until I return, we're in labor pain mode. We're in latency phase. And if you want to give birth to a new creation, there will be labor pains. It doesn't mean that something's wrong. It doesn't mean that something's broken. It doesn't mean you need to go something fix something. No, it means he's overcome the world, and he's delivering on his promise. He's delivering real righteousness and real justice. But that doesn't change the fact that we have natural consequences. So here's the thing, right? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God says this, I do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't create curtains to fall on us. Like he doesn't want us to pull on the curtains, but they'll fall. He doesn't want that. And so he says, the sovereign Lord declares, I don't don't want this to happen to you, but rather, I'm not pleased when they, am I not pleased when they turn, when they repent, and realign with my vision of righteousness and justice. Like in other words, like he doesn't want judgment to come, but it does, and it comes in cycles, and it comes in, in swells, and it comes in labor pangs. But there's no new creation without a delivery, and there's no delivery without without swells of of, of temporal judgments. Okay, and so this is what um, this is this is where we are in the story of of, of Genesis. that Abraham goes before the Lord. And God is basically saying there's been an outcry over this city. The outcry has gotten so strong over Sodom and Gomorrah that I'll have to go down and see what this is all about. It says in verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous, they've pulled on the cords of righteousness and justice so long that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if so, then I'll know. Okay. Uh, I'll read this other verse, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. This is what is said to Noah before the flood comes. The picture of water first and the picture of fire are both pictures of judgment. It is the turning point, the tipping point. You pulled on the curtain for too long, is what he's saying, and the curtain's about to fall down. He doesn't want it to fall down, but it will, because it's not made for people tugging on it. It's made for people to follow it and align it. And so, uh, this is what it says in in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5. For Noah, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of human race had become on the earth. Right? There's been... It's not just overnight. It's not just one sin. It is just pounds and pounds and pounds and layers and layers and systems and individuals of sin and sin and sin and sin. And at a certain point, the molly falls off the wall. And so he says, uh, it's so great. The human heart is only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that word regret. How could God regret something? It's almost like a, an economic term. It almost means like the debit. Like, like, you know, in the Great Depression when the bubble got too big. Like there's just too much indebted. And then the bubble breaks. The dam's about to break, right? This is is what he's saying. He's like, he can't regret something because he's the Lord, right? But the Lord regretted that he made human beings in the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So what does this passage mean? This passage means that, that God is not a helicopter parent and he's not a micromanager. And he allows for us to continue in our sin without micromanaging judgment. He's not always in our face. So how many of you guys know, or maybe you are the person that, you know, like your parent was in your face all the time, and your parent was a helicopter parent, and they never let you lose, and they always made excuses for you. Not, or you know somebody like this if you're a teacher, and they're always kind of cover for your grades and get you inflated grades. Right? And then they go off to college, and the curtain falls down. Right? You go out there, and this is what, the way God operates. He's not a micromanager. He will allow you to make the choices over and over and over again. He'll speak to you, and he will he'll discipline you through consequence, but he will he will allow for the outcry to build, okay? And this is important because Romans 1 says that he is revealing the wrath of God even in this age because he wants people to see how helpless people are, that they might cry out to him in salvation. So when we turn on the television set and there are people that are protesting, and not that there's anything wrong with protesting, but throwing poop at police officers, what we're supposed to see is something ain't right. Like we're pulling on the curtain, and, and nothing, we don't get away with things. It'll snap back, right? The same thing, right? On, on, on the other side of the thing, like, we're seeing another person get shot in the back seven times. Like, another person is shot in the back seven times. And there's an insensitivity to it, like it's just, like, it doesn't matter. And then there's a grievousness to the fact that, like, you know, then we're put next to a white individual that's able to get a different treatment. It doesn't mean that anybody you know, that anybody deserves, like that, that one person sin, it's not about that, it's about treatment, it's about justice and righteousness, and you can't have justice without righteousness, and you can't have righteousness without justice, and so the left, the furthest left, we're, you know, we're in a political cycle, this is relevant to us, if you go all the way down the line, you read, you know, the Marxist stuff, or some of the furthest leftist stuff, is seeking justice, but I would argue without righteousness, because it says that, power, that, that, that right and wrong is only defined by those who have power. And then ultimately, there is no right and wrong other than language. So the vision is that each person is able to redefine right and right on their own terms so long as nobody has power over anybody else. That's the furthest left. But the right forgets that justice, biblical justice, nine times out of ten, is not just paying your taxes. It is caring for the needy and helping the poor. If you look at the law of God in Leviticus, it's not just pay your taxes. It's take care of people. That's not mercy. That's justice. So nine times out of ten, it's not just treat people fairly. It is love people. It is what is the mercy that you're doing unto other people. This is the good news of the gospel that I've come to preach good news to the poor. Why? Because that's what justice looks like. Inevitably, we will always have the poor and so the rich always is responsible in some part to care for the poor. How, does, how do you define the roles of what the church does and the state does? I'll leave that to you at lunch. But the point is, is that if you pull on righteousness and justice for too long, it will fall down on your head. Now, the good news is, Until the end, and I want this on the screen, so this is the kind of anchor point of the message this morning. Until the end, every moment of justice and every moment of judgment is actually a good news moment because it is also a moment for salvation. Every time that there are plagues and locusts and 9-11s and racial this and that, God's saying, turn. This is a moment because it'll get worse than this. I don't want it to get worse for you. I want you to turn now. I want you to turn today. You see it? So until the end, even in Revelation, you'll see there's poured out bowls of judgment. And every time, it will say, either they turned or they didn't. And woe to the one that doesn't. Woe to the one that doesn't. So this is an opportunity. It's a hope moment. You see it? He's not done with you yet. He's still working on you. This is a good news moment. and He's trying to reveal something very important to you. You cannot help yourself. You cannot save yourself. And this is good for us to see because we need to see on the 6 o'clock news how helpless we are. We need to see how broken we are. We need to see what happens when we pull the curtain too hard. Because I'd rather have it happen to us in some, you know, legal discriminatory way or political way than eternal ways. So wake, this, is us, this is him waking us up. That we would see the visitation of judgment in this moment that we would avoid it in the next. That's what he's saying. And so, so this is what Sodom and, and Gomorrah is fundamentally about. There are three revelations that Abraham sees when he... Because this, this story is about Lot, but it's through the eye... It's through the lens of Abraham, and he's watching it. And so, you don't, you're not learning. The, the protagonist is not the people that are being judged. The protagonist is the people being saved. The protagonist is Abraham watching, and we're to see this story through the eyes of Abraham. That's why it begins with Abraham and ends with Abraham. And there are three fundamental things that Abraham is watching and seeing, and maybe three things we might catch by way of Scripture and experience today. Number one, the first revelation of Abraham is that sin is... is is mercilessly aggressive. Sin does not want to, coexist, to you, coexist with you. It wants to dominate you. The first mention of sin is Genesis 4. It creeps at the door. It wants to have you. Okay? Like, a, like sexually, that's the same word. It wants to get inside your heart and reproduce in you. So sin is not here to coexist. It's here to dominate. And it will always move forward as, as far as you let it, as we let it, in society, in our families, in our homes. Number two, God's judgment is not cruel. It's just. If we think we're sinless, then it is cruel because he's nitpicking us. But if we have a revelation of God handing us over to our sin, then we know he's not, he's not cruel. He's just. It's good to give to the poor. It's good to take care of the needy. It's good to, pay your, it's good to walk upright. It's good to define right and wrong, not by your standards, but by God's. If you don't, it makes sense. You can't have seven billion kings and queens defining right and wrong on their own terms. He's not, he's not cruel. He's just. It doesn't make him bad. Number three, that God's salvation is merciful, not meritous. And if we want him today, it's a miracle. Uh, <clears throat> starting in uh, verse one, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Much in parallel to what Abraham was doing in front of his city, but this one is at night, and Abraham's was during the day. Verse two, my lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. Lot shows hospitality, just like Abraham. The angels come to visit Lot on the border of his tent, just like Abraham. Uh, But Lot meets him in the evening, and you'll see the strangers don't want to meet with uh, Lot as much as they want to meet with Abraham, as well as only two visitors visit Lot, versus 3, because the Lord, there's actually three people, Jesus, and there's two other angels that came with him. The Lord stayed with Abraham while the two came down to go visit Lot. So it's a parallelism, but it's also a juxtaposition. It's meant to show... That Lot and Abraham have a different relationship with God. Uh, Lot is about to see righteousness accredited to him. Second Peter calls Lot righteous. I don't know how that he gets away with that. But apparently Jesus is very merciful to all of us. So Lot is saved by his faith. So Lot has faith, but he's not a friend. He doesn't walk with God in the cool of the day. He doesn't know God's business. He's not a friend. He's, he's, he has faith, but he doesn't have a friendship. He doesn't know the Lord's voice. He doesn't recognize the Lord when he arrives. The, the angels don't want, to, don't want to live with him, okay? And so, and so this, is, this, is, this is the picture. I had a friend of mine, a mentor, who said this. He said, if, if you run into a crisis moment in your life, in your circumstance, it means you've already not listened to God at least four different ways. Like, if you sow something bad and end up in a bad spot, Like you're in the 11th hour and you're not probably going to make it out of a certain circumstance. It's not the Lord's fault because he's been speaking to you. And now you're going to be taught by circumstance rather than the Lord's voice. And we'd rather be taught by the Lord's voice, right? So he said, I can tell you four things you didn't listen to before you got to this position. You didn't listen to the Bible. The Holy Spirit is so merciful and an advocate and leads you in all truth. You haven't listened to the Holy Spirit, right? When 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 our faith is getting shipwrecked and our marriages are getting shipwrecked and our relationships and our... And our, and our finances are falling apart. We haven't listened to the Bible. We haven't listened to the Holy Spirit. Maybe there was a good sermon or two on Sunday morning. You haven't, you know, you have, ch- church, hopefully, is a place where you're strengthening and being sharpened. And lastly, you probably have a few friends that have t- come to talk to you. I don't know about you, but my, my uh, experience is that if I ever do bonehead mistakes, the minute I commit those mistakes, I look back and I realize there's probably three or four people that told me about what I shouldn't be doing by the time I get there. So Lot is in a situation where he's not friends with God. He has a faith but he has a very fundamentally different relationship. And so here are the three uh, revelations as, as, as Abraham kind of watches this whole story take place. So Abraham is in this place. Abraham, it, it tells Abraham, he wants, God tells Abraham he wants him to see this, basically, because he is a blessed nation. He is meant to bring blessing to the earth. Uh, he is not just changing Abraham's world. He's changing Abraham and then, therefore, changing the world through uh, Abraham being a blessing, and, and it says right there in Genesis 18, before this whole thing gets started, that Abraham is to do justice, justice and do righteousness in the earth. And so, something about Abraham's calling and being able to walk in justice and walk in mercy and walk in righteousness has to do with what he's about to see. The first thing that Abraham sees, and the first thing that we'll see, is that sin is incredibly aggressive. Verse three, but he insisted so strongly that it, that um, they did go with him and enter into the house. This is Lot to the angels. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Verse 4, before they went to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called Lot, uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with him. So you see the picture is that the people are not just you know, like knocking on the door of the house, they're surrounding the house. And you see that the sin that's mentioned, and now it's both, again, I mentioned this before the sin, sin of Sodom is systemic, it's, it's everything. It's individual and systemic, it's not just sexual, it's, it's also not feeding the poor, it's also not caring for the widow. It's all of the whole thing. They're all backwards. They don't have righteousness and they don't have justice. But there's a reason, there's two reasons why uh, sex is an important theme uh, in this passage. Number one, because it's a metaphor for what sin wants to do. I mentioned it earlier, so I'm going to belabor the point. But as a metaphor, uh, sex. sex is 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 both identity and legacy, and what it's saying is that sex, or it's is that sin doesn't just want to visit us; it wants to like indoctrinate us. It wants to dominate us. It wants to invade into the spaces of our home and family life, right? So, um, so case in point, right? As as I'm looking at the news, and maybe I look at the news too much these days, but it's like, um, you know, there is an initiative in our nation to redefine um, uh, gender terms apart from the Bible. They are redefining right and wrong over the Bible. And, and the desire is not just like, okay, we're going to protect individual rights and let people like, you know, do what they want. The desire is, is to move into kindergarten and to teach this as a doctrine, right? So this is where, this is a, the coexist is a great vision. Like, I really wish we could all just chill and coexist, but the enemy doesn't want to coexist, right? He wants to and he wants to move in. And so, the, I mean, I think I, I sent the picture of, it's like, it was crazy to me, there's this picture of this gender-bred man, right? And this is the idea, it's in two states Practice in 20-something other states it's being discussed, that we are going to teach our kids that what we think that we are in terms of our brain, what our heart is attracted to, and and the way that our anatomy is set up, they're all different things. And God doesn't define who we are or what we do. We do, basically, in our own feelings and presumptions and and personal wisdom. This is the deal, that sin doesn't want to coexist, it wants to invade. Now, number two is, uh, I'll I'll read this verse to us, because I think that even the, the beginning word is reminiscent of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But 1 Corinthians uh, 5, if it's up there, I don't know, 6 is it maybe? Um, it says this quick verse. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sin is, a per, is personal. Oh, excuse me. All other sin a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So here's, here's the other reason. So there's a, uh, a, a philosophical reason why sex is in this part, but it's also a practical reason. And that is that all sin is equal for God. And there's an important argument that we don't judge certain sins more important than other sins, or your sins worse than mine. All sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all sin is under the penalty of death. But, clearly in 1 Corinthians, we cannot turn our head to the fact that sexual sin is put in a different category. And here's why. He goes on to explain it. Because sexual sin um, is not only about what you do, but it has the ability to affirm, confirm, or deny who you are. That's why sex is different. Sex is not like, okay, like if I go and tell a bank robber you're an idiot, or if I go tell a bank person you're an idiot, like a teller you're an idiot, and I tell my wife she's an idiot, that's two separate things, right? You would agree with that. Because there's a sacred place there that has the ability to define like, like who, who I am and, and what I do on this earth. So for those that are single, and maybe those that are married too, right? Sex is connection. So what happens is you get married and you walk your days and my day continually tells me, my identity is I'm a pastor. I'm a nice guy. I'm a pastor. I pray for people, you know. Or, you know, I, I, I'm an Asian or whatever. You know, like I, or I'm in debt or whatever, or, which I'm not. But if I was, you know, uh, I, I have an iPhone. Like, like, the world is telling you who you are. And what happens is, is that causes major challenge and stress to the marriage. Because meanwhile, she's being told she's a mom, or she's pretty this or that, or whatever she's being told. And what was being made to be one is being separated because there is a splitting of, of the identity. So what sex is, is a reconnection. And, and, and other than reproduction, it's a reconnection. And when, when a couple has sex, what they are telling themselves into the world is, before I'm a pastor, I'm her husband. Before I'm separate from her, I'm one with her. Me and her have been made one in 2005, and that has not changed. So sex is reconnection. So so the premise there in 1 Corinthians 6 becomes, if you are not having sex with your spouse, then who are you telling yourself you are? Because sex is aligning identity, no matter what. Are you aligning identity with a prostitute, is what 1 Corinthians 6 says, with a woman on a screen, with with a fantasy of of a person down the street, with somebody else's spouse? Like, you're not just telling somebody what you're doing, you're telling somebody and yourself who you are. And that's why you could tell, I mean, all, like, like almost all the time when, um, when you'd be in youth group and a kid would come out and say, yeah, I've been struggling with pornography, like, you'll, you'll, you already know that. You can feel it. Because the depth of the shame and, and the hurt and the, and the brokenness that hits us when we allow sexual sin to take over us, it's, it's, a, it's a target spot. It's like the seedbed of identity, and no wonder that the enemy wants to take it and redefine it and pervert it and abuse it. Why is why is why is Genesis 6, when the flood comes, about angels having sex with humans and recreating? And why ask yourself that question. Why is the prelude to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah about sex? Why are both of them about sex? Is it just because God wants to talk about sex? Is it just because it's it's scandalous and something to get the church's attention? No. It's because it's not just telling you what you are, it's or telling you what you're doing, it's telling you who you are. And it's you aligning with that truth and reality or not. That's why sex is so sacred and that's why it needs to get defended. All right, moving on. Lot well, went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. So there's his faith. He, he, is, he is hanging on to some semblance of right and wrong that is not dictated by the majority. Don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them uh, what you would like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. So, there's two ways you could read that. Either, he's just an idiot, you know, like, like it just helps us to understand the grace that's poured out on Lot's life, like, based on what he just did and the way that the Lord treats him. Uh, that's one way. The other way, you could read it in a hyperbolic, sarcastic term, like, he's appealing to the people, like, do you realize how far off, like, it would be better that you would, you know, like, come to this house and, you know, sleep with, like, my daughters, who are my, uh, you know, my, you know, my family, then you would sleep with these, you know, these strangers that have just come into this place and negate all these like terms of hospitality. Like it's, in other words, it's like if AT&T calls you and says you owe them 500 bucks, it's like, well, why don't you take my house and take my shirt too, you jerk, you know, like this is what he's saying. Like, could you realize how far off we've gone here that you're just asking random people on the street? Like, so he's just trying to potentially show a stark contrast for the difference between right and wrong. Take it as you will. But we see from this episode clearly that point two, that God's judgment is not cruel. They continue on, right? This is, this is I mean, for, if, if this is, like if this is your definition, if this is God's definition of right and wrong, it's not too crazy of a line. Like it, it shows the depravity of man being given over to of what happens time and time again when people continue to pull on the curtain, there's no consequence. And they think that because there's no consequences, nothing's fallen on me, that it must be that God agrees, agrees with me. Just because nothing happens to a person because they're judged in the moment doesn't mean that it's not sinful. And if that goes on and on and on, what, ha- what could happen in society and in a culture when it's completely redefined what right and wrong is? God is making an obvious point here. Look how utterly helpless that humans are when they are not uh, guided by my truth, my righteousness, my justice. This is how far it can go without ever, anyone ever turning. Verse 9, get out of the way, they replied. This fellow citizen has come as a foreigner. Now he wants to play the judge. So, right. So now God's law has become the outside in as opposed to being the center, will treat you worse than them. They keep bringing pressure on Lot and move forward to break down the door. Grace moment, verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back. This is that picture of salvation. He's pulling Lot back inside the door. It's not that man, what man does. It's God's power. The gospel is not talk. It's power. And it is, it, is, it is sealing up the Holy Spirit inside of us and making a promissory note that we will never sin successfully. And that if you are saved today, you are always saved. And there's nothing that can snatch you from the powerful hand of God. You are not saved by your will. You're not saved by your merit. You're not saved by your intelligence. You're not saved By your doctrine, you are saved by grace and faith alone. And so God yokes this guy up by the back of his collar and pulls him in the house. I wonder if you've had a moment where God has just taken the wheel for you of sovereignty and just pulled you out of a situation, closed the door. That's what God is doing. He's not saying your life is perfect or painless. He's saying that in the end, it will all be for good and glory. And He is steering this ship, not you. You are not the director of your salvation. So He pulls the guy in the house. Verse 11. Then they they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. So there was the the judgment moment, the invitation for salvation, and the cursing. Pharaoh had ten times. He doesn't want Pharaoh. He wants Pharaoh to turn. Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God hardened his heart with him. And on the day, right, on the day with the frogs, I remember even reading it just a a little while ago. They say to Pharaoh, like, when are you going to turn and repent? You know what he says? All these frogs are everywhere. He's walking on the frogs. He's like, you idiot. You should wake up. This is a moment to turn. Tomorrow I'll turn He says, "Tomorrow I'll turn." So that moment, God' seals in the boat. that's the sealing of the Holy Spirit for the salvation of Noah. The judgment came, but the, but the judgment for Noah meant the judgment for the world actually meant salvation for Noah. The worst possible day for Lot actually became his best possible day because the moment of judgment came, and instead of hardening his heart, he turned his heart. and that moment came, became, um, it became eternal for Lot. It became the established. Reality, spiritual reality for Lot. When he said yes to Jesus, when he turned from his ways and he cried out to God, 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 God pulled him in and shut out sin and shut out evil and attack from his life. And so it continues on. Uh, verse 21. It's, or verse, uh, verse, where am I? Yeah, 12. Uh, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws or daughter-in-laws or anyone in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that He has sent us to destroy it. Verse fourteen. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to be married, marry his daughters, and he says, "Hurry and get out." So you are actually going to see six or seven times the key word, the theme, uh, the guiding um, theme of the rest of these verses is speed. It's rapidness. Hurry. Do this. Get up. Get out. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Don't linger. Don't hesitate. The repentance call is now. It's not tomorrow. You can't be like Pharaoh. You be like Pharaoh, your, your heart will be harder. You have to do it now. Turn, leave. It's saying, it's saying if you're in a spot in your life that you know it's time to leave, it's time to leave now. If you're in a relationship or a pattern, it's time to leave now. It's not time to compromise. It's not time to wait. It's not time to linger. Make, no, it's time to leave now. This thing is coming for you. It's, com- it's not coming to coexist with you or be your buddy or cuddle. It's coming to take you. And, and so it's a seriousness, like, like this is the nature, like he is, he's saying to Abraham, like, let this judgment not be without redemption, like the, 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 the judgment moment is for salvation, that people would see, like the evil and the depravity and the, and the ultimate destiny of what happens when you pull on righteousness and justice for too long, and not wait, you got to turn now, you've got to turn now, this is what it's saying, hurry, get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And you'll find people, if you want to redefine good and evil on your own terms, you'll find people, that person's such a Karen, you know, ha, ha they're so uptight, and oh, you know those religious people, ha ha ha. I mean, you'll find people if you want to redefine good and evil, and you can find anybody that can makes, makes, make funny what should be serious. But here's what I found. God sometimes speaks without people, but 99% of the time, God speaks in the Bible through people. And that means he's going to come to you with people that are not perfect. And you're gonna to have to do the discipline, right? Like I, like here's the thing: I wanna tell you this. If if you've had three or more people come to you with the same feedback, let's call that pride, let's call that fear of man, you know, whatever that, that may be. Something that is hurting you. People that you people, your enemies could be your friends. God's not being discriminatory, he's humbling you. And if he's visited you with three or more people with the same feedback, I would listen to it. I would go to get some godly counsel. And understand that you don't see the 360. And we are all, we, nobody is above being like a lot. Nobody is above hesitating and nobody is above hardening their hearts. And we all love to be wise in our own eyes. And so if somebody has come to you to rebuke you, whether it's an enemy or a friend, be thankful that potentially God is visiting you, not for your judgment, for your salvation. Remember, I was a youth pastor and um, everything was going great. And... Uh, and the whole thing with youth pastors, you just, you got to be fun. Like, just be fun. If you want to be a youth pastor, just be fun. You'll be all right. So you're fun, and, and you're friendly, and you love Jesus. But I don't need to be organized about anything. You know what I mean? Like, that's for somebody in the grown-up church. Like, I'm just here to be fun, you know? So the guy sits me down, and the youth ministry is going great. And like, I'm like, recognize how great this is. You know what I mean? Like, I—that stuff's going great. That's not always the best place to be when stuff's going great. Because that's usually when you make a lot of mistakes. So he says nine great things, you know, I'm glad that it's growing, glad He's like, you could work on your discernment and your judgment calls. Like, you don't make great discernment and judgment calls. And I'm like, how dare you? I mean, do you know how great this is going? Like, you mock, you know, like what? And you remember the one thing. Like, he said nine great things. I couldn't tell you the other nine things. I remember the one thing. It sticks with you, right? So two years later, like, we're driving in this... Eight passenger minivan or whatever these they they need to have a whole seminary course on how to drive those minivans because they throw you in there like everybody should know. I didn't know how to drive it. We're driving to a a Bethel thing. It's raining. And the it's in Charlotte and like all of the like ramps are like Dr. Seuss tunnels. Like why are we? Can you just one is enough? Like why are they going like this? So I'm trying to get over. The guy won't let me over. Miss the exit. Be late. Or cut in. I'm I'm connecting. I'm having fun. I'm sh- I'm a race car driver for crying out loud. You know I can do it. I can do anything. I speed up. This this thing hydroplanes. It will not stop. We run into I mean a bankment like this that's down the hill into another uh, highway, another whatever hundred yards down the hill. We I ran this minivan with eight kids into a, a rail that's about this high probably going 50 miles an hour. I mean, I've seen enough movies. I'm like, this thing's not going to... I mean, I, I thought we're done. This, these breaks are not going to work. We're done. Grace of God catches me. And, I, and I, that had my attention. The Lord had my attention on that one. The point is, is that by the time we run into circumstance, he's probably already sent two or three people our way to learn. And if we're not humble enough to listen to the first one, we'll have to listen to the second one. And this is what he's saying about Lot and us. If today you have a soft heart and you can recognize... Human depravity, you can recognize your own, your own uh, uh, contribution to, to the problems in your family and household. Today, turn your heart. Don't be, don't be stubborn. Because the next one will be worse. He would rather discipline with the, sta- with the staff and the rod. He gave Noah the government. He said, human blood is precious because they're all image bearers. And the government is installed to, ins- to, to be the borders of justice. But you don't want to be disciplined by them. You want to be disciplined by the Lord. And he disciplines those that he loves. And so if he's come to you, whether it's a critic or somebody that didn't give you the right, didn't speak to it the right way, the judgment moment always comes with a salvation moment. It's a time to turn. So he says, verse 17, I'll read quicker. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or, or do not be swept away. Have you been stalling on your repentance? Have you been waiting tomorrow? Tomorrow I'll do it. Tomorrow I'll... I'll change tomorrow, I'll talk to somebody tomorrow, I'll confess one of these days, the door will open up for me. Don't stall, he says. Flee, get out of there, it's time to go. Verse 18, but Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, that means grace, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. Look, here's a town nearer to me to run to. And it's small. That's the way that we are. We want to go to the edge. Like we don't, we, we, we want to do the least amount of turning and the least amount of change because we're creatures of habit and we don't want to change. And, and so there it is. Like Lot's been tarrying and he's been waiting and he wants to, he, he doesn't want to delete the app. Like he just, he wants to, like, not push certain buttons on the app or unfollow different people on the app. Or he wants to, you know, not cut off the relationship, but just kind of flirt with the person. Like, that's what Lot wants to do, right? He wants to do the least possible thing to get him out of trouble. And this is what he's begging. Just let me go to the, to the foothills. Don't let me go up in the mountains, right? So we compromise with repentance. We compromise with it. We make deals with it. We try and coexist. And that's just kicking the can down the road. I mean, maybe it's better than nothing, but it'll, it'll come to your back door. And we see later on, that's the symbol, right? That his daughters get him drunk and sleep with him because sin follows him out of the tent. It wasn't just a Sodom problem. It was a sin problem, and it was in him. And that's the problem. If you don't cut it off, it becomes a part of you, and it doesn't, it's not here to cuddle with you, right? It's here to dominate you. Flee quickly, he says. Have you compromised with sin? Have you, have you, have you created deals with it? Verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur in Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus, he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Do you reminisce with sin? Do you have a nostalgia for it? Like, it was just so sweet, right? Like, at least it was, at least you knew how to control your emotions and least You had that substance. At least you had that friend and There's a nostalgia to it. And maybe you're not there, but you're still thinking about it and it's still there. Say, don't look back. Egypt's never better than the promised land. Don't look back. He freed you from that. It's over. You don't have to be there anymore. And it wasn't better for you. Like you're putting the rosy colored glasses, but don't look back. Turn, go now. Leave it. Don't compromise it. Don't cuddle with it. It doesn't want to cuddle with you. It wants to take you over. Leave it and forget it. And so there are three revelations that we see in this passage that Abraham sees as well. Early the next morning, it says, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, that third person angle, toward all the land of the plain and he saw dense smoke rising from the land. What was in his mind? What was in his heart to see all that? Like that it wouldn't be wasted on him. Like why did God want him to see that? And why does God want us to read this? Why? Just to make us scared to like freak us out? No, he doesn't want us to, he, it's not to, free he doesn't want fear and he doesn't want punishment. He doesn't want judge, he doesn't want anyone to perish. That we would turn. Like the reason why the verse exists is that we would turn today. That we would turn today. That he would use even this instrument, you know, of evil and instrument of, in this time of judgment to to be used for good and glory in our lives. That we would turn in 2020 and not re- repeat the mistakes of our fathers and our fathers' fathers and re- repeat the mistakes of our past. That we would turn, that we would that we would hear his voice today and that we would turn if there's anything in us that comes from that Sodom place that we would run and never look back. This is why, this is why. That we would have a revelation of sin as being aggressive and not passive. That we would have a revelation that judgment is not cruel, but it's kind because it offers salvation. It offers salvation. And number three, that we would we would um, see that that salvation is merciful, it's not meritus. It's merciful, it's not meritus. It's not me, it's, it's, it's him. So this is the way that, that uh, Jesus commentary is on this. Um, and uh, I'll have the band up. But this is the way that Jesus uh, would preach this sermon. He would say to you this morning, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it would be in the days of the Son of Man. You got a guy that's got newspaper clippings and he's lining up all the six, 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 sixes in the New York Times. He's just like, Shh, this is when it's coming. He's going, don't listen to that guy. We don't have to go or be anything more than we are right now. He's already done it. Like, he's already done the work. So when we talk about, oh, the Lord's doing this and the Lord's doing that. we got to do this. we got to do this. we got to do this. No. <laughs> like, the Lord is not, the Lord is not a, uh, an advocate for frenetic, you know, shallow repentance. He's looking for friendship. And what he's saying to us is, Today, if it's a day of peace or if it's a day of turmoil, is always the same day because every day is a day to love God, love neighbor, and make disciples. Today, we are overcoming by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony because he is king on the throne. And, and, and today is no different than any other. These are the birth pangs for a great moment that's coming. Verse 27, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them. That's the thing, it's gonna be a surprise. It's not gonna be some Ouija board that we figured out. Like he's already told us and he's revealed to us. And so now today, if we see the scripture, we would turn and we would be ready and not unprepared when he comes. Verse 28, it was the same day as in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day, uh, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur ran down from heaven, and destroyed them all. What he's saying, he's not a helicopter parent. He's saying he'll allow for the days to go on and he won't micro judge you. And you can't look to the left or the right or the news or your friends or whatever else. You have to look to his voice because his voice is the only thing that will substantiate righteousness and justice in any accurate way. Today, today, today. Verse 30, it will be like the day the son of man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possession inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that day, two people will be in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other left. Actually, left behind series got it wrong, for the record. If you're here, that's good news. You don't want to be gone, okay? The left behind people are where you want to be, just for the record. They got it backwards. But nonetheless, two people, one will be taken. 35, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. And so it is. Uh, Days like this, uh, they don't feel like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the trick because we think that Sodom and Gomorrah is over and it won't happen again. And that was just a story from a fairy tale long, long ago. And so we laugh at sin and we laugh at that and we tug on righteousness and we tug on justice and we pretend like there's no consequence. And that's what happened, right? With the Nuremberg trials in 1945, they tried all those Nazi criminals and they asked, why did you do this atrocious thing? Like, how did you not have any sort of, you know, linear idea of what right and wrong was? Did you totally lose? Like, how did you get to a place where totally lost. What is the difference between right and wrong? And you know what their answer is? I just followed orders. I just judged the left and the right. I just looked around and I said, this seems like a pretty good idea. I just decided what's right and wrong on my own. I didn't ask God. I didn't ask for what righteousness and justice looked like. I didn't look at Jesus as my definition. I just looked at my neighbor. And this is what he's saying is that uh, just because the sun is shining because it's not Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't mean it's not a time to turn. Today is the time to turn. Today is a lot day. Today is an Abraham day. And today is the time to turn. Would you stand with me as we pray and close? Um, I appreciate your guys' patience with me for a very long passage. We read the whole chapter of uh, 19, which is great. Got a lot done, but, um, but even more that your work would be done, that your kingdom would come, Lord Jesus and your kingdom is not here or there. It's not branded or hashtagged. Nobody can own it or commodify it or sell it or market it or put it on a t-shirt. Lord, you are the only one that has the kingdom of heaven. You are the only one that has the rights to righteousness and justice, God, so that we might come to your throne and align with you rather than backwards. God, that you would redefine us rather than we would redefine you and make you in your son's image rather than we would make you in our image, Jesus. I pray for a grace and a mercy that if anyone is going through any sort of difficult time in this moment, a tribulation, a trial, that they would understand that it came not to hurt them and harm them, but to help them, that they would turn on this day of salvation. And I pray that if anybody here under the sound of my voice is needing or ready to turn to Jesus for the first time or the 77th time, that they would turn and they would do it now and never look back in Jesus' name. Anyone watching on YouTube, anyone gathered in churches that can't even hear my voice, I pray that today would be the day of vegetation, that we would not wait until it's too late, that we would turn now and look back. You are good and you are are deserving all the glory and power because you are the one that holds righteousness and justice in your hand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc